This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today's episode comes to us from the NBC studios in New York. It's the NBC News of the World of January 27th, 1942. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us to continue to produce the podcast, And thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the early morning news of the world. And before we start our roundup of world capitals, here in the New York newsroom, we have the latest reports on fighting in the Pacific Theater. Uh, The first round of the battle for the Dutch East Indies may not be over yet, but so far the Allied nations are way ahead. Upwards of 30 Japanese ships so far have been sunk or damaged in the great running sea and air fight in Makassar Strait between Borneo and Celebes. American and Dutch forces between them are believed to have accounted for close to 25,000 Japanese soldiers gone down with their transport ships. The latest success is the torpedoing of a Japanese aircraft carrier announced by the Navy Department last night. The big ship is believed to have sunk after the attack by an American submarine. The Australian Air Force, employing the same tactics as the Americans and the Dutch, struck at the Japanese invasion fleet in the Bismarck Islands during the night, and a Melbourne communique says that three Jap ships were damaged in Rabaul Harbor. Now, Tokyo today claims the Japanese troops in Malaya are within 30 miles of Singapore, but there is no British confirmation for that. Remember, that's a Tokyo claim. Now, there's no indication yet of where the British line is now that uh, Batu Pahat has been lost, but on the west, at least, the front is less than 60 miles from Singapore. In Burma, according to a Rangoon communique, there's no change in the situation. And it isn't quite clear from that whether General Headquarters at Rangoon means that British troops still are withdrawing toward Mulmain or whether they've braced their lines. The American volunteer flyers in Burma have smashed another Japanese attempt to attack Rangoon from the air. In the latest clash, they shot down three and maybe four Japanese planes. The exact toll of Japanese losses in the Battle of Makassar is most difficult to compute because communiques from various sources overlap. But Washington has announced that American naval forces have accounted for at least eight and possibly ten Japanese transports. American Flying Fortress bombers sank another transport and set fire to one. And then there's the aircraft carrier, which makes at least 13 ships sunk, or probably sunk, by American forces. Now, the Dutch have blasted as many or more. Now, here's a late bulletin from Batavia. The Japanese are believed to have extended their landings in southwest Celebes. The Netherlands High Command says the invaders apparently have occupied their points in the Kendari region of that island. 
In the Southern Hemisphere, the Pan-American Conference at Rio de Janeiro closes today with every indication of being the most important in the history of inter-hemispheric relations. A final plenary session is scheduled to give formal approval to 39 resolutions designed to cleanse the entire hemisphere of Axis influences. Adoption of the resolutions is regarded as, well, just only a formality. But one century-old problem still threatens to sound a discordant note at the otherwise harmonious finale. It's the border dispute between Ecuador and Peru. Now, Ecuador may bring up the argument at the conference today, unless Peru previously accepts a formula for settling the controversy. In Montevideo, an authoritative source discloses that Uruguay's diplomatic delegations in Berlin and in Rome have closed their offices. Now, the staffs will leave soon for Lisbon, preparatory to sailing for home. Uruguay is one of the 17 American nations that have broken diplomatic relations with the Axis. The diplomatic break, in addition to an economic break, has been recommended by the conference. Uruguay also is supporting anti-Axis financial moves by requiring exchange permits on all remittances to foreign countries except Great Britain and the United States. The United States delegation to the conference regards the financial measure as, well, perhaps the strongest of the entire conference. The head of the American delegation under Secretary of State Sumner Wells says that he's eminently satisfied with the outcome of the conference. Broadcasting to the United States last night, Wells said the conference has more than accomplished its purpose, and said Wells, the unity of the Western Hemisphere has been preserved. From Moscow, the Red Armies are driving westward for further victories this morning. But Soviet communiques reveal no details except to say that a number of additional villages have been taken and that German losses are heavy. Word from unofficial sources is that Reserve, that's just 140 miles northwest of the Kremlin, is expected to fall any minute and that other Russian troops are pressing forward at uh, Veliki Luki, only 80 miles from the border of Soviet Latvia. The Soviet communique concludes with news of two more enemy transports sunk in the Barents Sea. Next comes news from that great democracy across the Atlantic. Go ahead, London. This is Robert St. John in London. Scrappy, round-faced Winston Churchill reported to his nation today. On the stroke of noon, the Prime Minister began a serious, hour-and-a-half fighting speech in Parliament. By his own wish... That speech started off a three-day debate on the whole conduct of the war. And also, by his own wish, the debate will be climaxed by a vote of whether or not Parliament wishes the Churchill government to continue in office. A vote of confidence or no confidence. There is no doubt here in London about what will happen when it's all over. When all the serious and petty complaints and criticisms have been aired. There is no doubt but that Parliament will tell the world it does have confidence in Winston Churchill. Churchill himself insisted on a really free debate and a really honest vote. He insisted on this demonstration of British democracy so that, as he put it, the whole world may know where we stand. He even urged his critics not to be mealy-mouthed in their speeches. Before actually reviewing the war, Churchill was several times a bit whimsical, tossing out occasional light banter, occasional jibes at his critics. Once, for example, he chided those who have lighter burdens to carry than some of the rest of us. 
Once, when he referred to the flight of Rudolf Hess to Britain, a member interrupted him to ask, where is Hess now? Without an instant's hesitation, Churchill snapped back, where he ought to be. The high point of the Churchill speech was his announcement that a joint Pacific Council has been established, a council on which Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and Holland will be represented, and that Australia, New Zealand, and Canada have been granted uh, representation in the war cabinet. Uh, he called on Britain not to allow itself to become rattled by events in the Far East. He refused to predict how long the Pacific War will last, but he frankly said it will be attended by heavy punishment. He doubted that the Japs will attempt an invasion of Australia. He pledged himself to do all in his power to aid Australia and to persuade America to do likewise. Churchill told dramatically how when he left Washington, Roosevelt gripped his hand tightly and said, we will fight this thing through to the bitter end, whatever the cost may be. Churchill referred to American troop landings in Northern Ireland and said a considerable force will follow. And he also gave Hitler something to think about when he said American fighters and bombers will defend this island and will attack Germany. As the prime minister got into a serious review of the war, I looked over at a tall, thin man in the balcony near me, and I noticed that he bent forward, cocking an ear and drinking in every word Churchill was saying. That man was American Ambassador John G. Wynett. A lot of other people were listening just as intently. Not a single seat on the floor of Parliament appeared to be vacant. They were there from all over, from Scotland, from Northern Ireland, from Wales, from all over England, there to hear Winston Churchill tell of his trip to America, his leadership at the Empire's most crucial hour, and his opinion of how the war is going. Often, Churchill was interrupted by little rumbles of approval, by shouts of, hear, hear. Churchill paid tribute to uh, his and our Russian allies. He disclosed that Britain has sent Stalin exactly what Stalin asked for in the way of raw material. At the moment, there is only a slight lag due to the weather, but Churchill said this lag will be overcome next month. Then he turned to Libya. He told how when the winter battle began down there, the British had 45,000 troops against an Axis army twice that size. But, said Churchill, two-thirds of those men of Hitler and men of Mussolini have been killed, wounded, or captured. The British loss has only been 18,000. Churchill was grim when he told Parliament how this battle has tested our men. He said the desert fight has proved that men cannot only die for king and country, everyone knew that, but that they can also kill. He admitted that Rommel is a daring, skillful opponent. He admitted that a grave new battle now rages. But he said... Uh, he never hazards a prediction about the outcome of a battle while it still is in progress. And now this is Robert St. John returning you to New York. Now for a report on events here in the United States as given by Earl Godwin from the newsroom in Washington. And good morning, folks. What I have to say comes right along behind Robert St. John because it's a part of the big effort. Your Uncle Sam and his pal John Bull get right down to cases now and pile up everything they have, all their resources, all of their ingenuity, all of their ships, all of their factories, all of their stuff, and promise to use it commonly in the common defense against this very common enemy. That's the meaning of the White House announcement which was released this morning about three joint war boards and so forth. The White House announced that the new boards will handle separate phases of a plan 
to knit still more closely the gigantic efforts of the United Nations. One of the new groups will control shipping. Another will control raw materials. And the third, possibly the most important, will direct the disposition of munitions. All possible information between this country and England will be exchanged under the plan, and though only Britons and Americans will actually be board members, it is believed and said they will confer often with representatives of the other United Nations. It is expected these board members will be appointed shortly. I think that would give you a better picture if you just envisioned a, a common storeroom to which these boards will go to take the stuff that is needed here, there, and everywhere, everywhere, and just use them against the onslaught without resort to as much red tape and conferring as there has been. Meantime, Washington hears rather loud, short and sharp, sharp cries from down under, where the Australians and the Dutch are telling us, in effect, to hurry up and get busy or else. That seems to mean that the Aussies and the East Indian Dutch want the United States and Britain to help in a terrific and possibly a reckless offensive against the Japanese who are coming right down the line regardless. They are stopped for a brief time by successful naval engagements against them in the Straits, but no one believes the Japs will stop there. And incidentally, that remark of St. John's that the British government does not believe that the Japanese will invade or attempt to invade Australia is the first we have heard of it here because here in this country or in this, in this city, I haven't heard anybody uh, say that the Japanese would not invade Australia. In fact, we have thought they would if they could. The president signs that bill, by the way, to extend the retirement system, and that includes congressmen who must contribute a slice of their wages, same as everyone else. And the House finally agrees to what it looks to me to be a rather ragged version of the price control bill. The Senate may take it up and finish the thing today. Nobody, I haven't found anybody who gives the way this bill is written a 100% endorsement, but it provides a vast and severe price control authority, including authority to control rents in defense areas. And it gives the price administrator the power and authority to license you to do business. If you don't conform to the government price regulations, out you go on your ear. But the price controller, of course, must get the court to do that. Also, you're permitted to go to court and sue anybody who overcharges you, and you may get three times the overcharge back. Sugar rationing this morning stands at about 12 ounces a week per person when they actually get down to rationing. The Dias Committee is in a mood to say, I told you so and will reveal to Congress all it had on the Japanese espionage organization on the West Coast, which Dai says he was urged to keep under cover, while the executive branch of the government tried to smooth over the Japanese situation. That was more than, I think that was within the last two years. And a heavy concentration of Japanese merchants here were organized into a front for Japanese spy work, and Dai says that he has all the information and intends to put it into a booklet and lay it before Congress in about two weeks. That's all from Washington at this time. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the latest news of the world. Now, you've heard our reporter, Robert St. John, in London, Earl Godwin in Washington, and this is John Fraser speaking from New York. For the latest news, keep tuned to this station. This is the Blue Network. Thank you.